This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. With Rob Brown and Martin Bissett. And a big shout out to one of our special podcast partners, Dex.com. They wear receipt bank. They've been through a great rebound. There's a lot of great stuff going on there, Martin, isn't there, at Dex? You know what, Rob? I always speak to accounting firms about having a strong, uh, clearly articulated value proposition really early on in their messaging. You know, as soon as you see that firm, it tells you something. When I go to Dex.com, that's D-E-X-T.com, it says right in front of me, we make accountants and bookkeepers and the businesses you advise more productive, profitable, and powerful with better data and insights. Those three illustrative P's there, productive, profitable, and powerful. What a great, clear value proposition. So, as accounting practitioners listening to this, if you're looking to make your firm more productive, profitable, and powerful, not just for you, but for the businesses you advise, go to dext.com, that's D-E-X-T, dot com and start a free trial or book a demo love that dex gives you more time and better data to advise on your clients businesses so your accountants get over to dex.com thank you well, welcome to our special guest interview today and i'm thrilled to have with me today one of the legends in the accounting world it's gary seamus gary good day to you good day to you a legend might be overstating it a bit but thank you anyways <laughs> well given the track record of what you've done gary you come pretty close for people that haven't come across you and your name give us a, a, a biopsy is that the right word a biography in a few sentences of what you've got to and what's brought you to this place i actually went to the skin doctor this morning for a biopsy <laughs> so uh, no we're just going to do a, we're just going to do a biography how's that so uh, that's great hey i'm gonna uh, i'm gonna this i mean i I could spend a lot of time on this, uh, but I'm not. I'm just going to give it a quick read. Uh, and really going a million years back, I mean, I was going to be a doctor. That didn't work out for me. I ended up as a uh, going into accounting. My dad was in accounting, and I said decided to try it. I liked it. Um, so I had to rechannel myself. I had to pivot when I was very young from a biology background to an accounting background. But my first job was with uh, uh, one of the big eight accounting firms, Tushross in Atlanta. I was there for three years. And then in 1981, I went back and joined my dad's very small practice in Cleveland, Ohio. And between 1981 and 2015, for 34 years, I ran that firm. And we took that firm from $225,000 in business to about $100 million. Uh, we had a very broad advisory focus. We had some vertical focuses. And uh, we had a great run. Um, uh, we sold the firm in uh, 2015 to BDO, and at that point in time, BDO was 104 years old and was the largest transaction in their history. So it was a big deal, and I think in a lot of ways led to BDO's uh, current strategy in terms of their M&A strategy. Uh, but I went to BDO for a short time, and it was a bad fit. Nothing wrong with BDO. It just I was very entrepreneurial, and they were very bureaucratic, and they had to be, and I wasn't going to change. So I was there for a short period of time, and five and a half years ago, uh, decided I wanted to continue working. So I launched Winding River Consulting. And we're a consulting firm that focuses almost exclusively in the accounting industry. We do leadership development training. Uh, we did digital marketing. And then I, uh, I help firms in terms of strategy and uh, visioning. Thank you for that. And the phrase, being there, done that, would certainly apply to Gary Seamus in the accounting world. And you speak very much into the worlds of managing partners now, don't you, Gary, in your current role? Yeah, um, I do. Uh, my partner, uh, he'll deal with uh, senior marketing people at his firms, but I, I, I generally only work with managing partners. How has the managing partner role changed over the years? Well, we're trying to change it. I'm not sure it's changed as much as it should. 
Uh, but we are at uh, through my leadership development, we are trying to change it. Uh, um, you know, I always believe that uh, the focus is the managing partner should be working on the business, not in the business. So, uh, so that's the big pivot. I'm really trying to get people to understand that their time is much more valuable in leveraging all the people working for them than it is uh, them spending an hour on a client. So we're trying to uh, teach them that, and we're also trying to give them the, the right tools to be successful in doing that. And that tools is, you know, contemporary issues, which obviously contemporary, so they're going to change. But then there's things like skills, uh, you know, what kind of skills do you need, human capital, things like that. So we're trying to define that. You know, I always joke, you know, with the idea, you know, how did you get to be the managing partner? Well, you're the person who went to the bathroom when they had the vote <laughs> and you came back. And the reality is, you know, most people, you became accountants because you wanted to become accountants. You didn't become an accountant because you wanted to be the managing partner of an accounting firm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so most accountants are just not really trained with that skill set to be managing partners. You know, and thus, I think we could really make a difference in those that want to try and educate themselves better at doing it. But then there's just a big weakness there in terms of their ability to do it. And, and you know, maybe getting right back to your question, you know, you know, you know, in this last two and a half years, um, has leadership ever been more important in this last two and a half years um, and, and how we lead our firms going forward with these just huge, huge major pivots that happened in, uh, you know, overnight. Um, so, so there was, so matching partners had to be pretty focused and they had to be pretty competent in what they're doing. So um, I think that their need was uh, uh, maybe acerbated or accelerated or now really uh, maybe better understood how important they are to the organization. Mm. And you talk to managing partners a lot. If we were to ask them, what is top of your agenda right now? What's on your list? Those are the kind of things we're going to dig into today. But just before we go into a little more detail on what the priorities are for managing partners, is it harder being a managing partner now, Gary, do you think, than ever before? Or has it always been tough? Um, I, I think it's always been tough. You know, uh, you know, you're still, you know, Harry Truman, the buck stops with you, um, former American president for your audience. Um you have uh, an international uh, audience, but everyone yeah, knows okay, how to. Okay. Um, so uh, yeah. So uh, you know. So yeah. But but so so the challenges have changed. You know, and I'm sure everybody's going to say, "Oh, the challenges are much more difficult now than they were then." But when back then, they probably were saying the same thing you know, about that. I mean, it's people. It's leading an organization of professionals, and the real challenges. I mean, getting to back what I just talked about is that. Most of the people leading it just have never trained. They don't have the skill sets. They learn by uh, they learn by trial and error. And I think there's a better way to do it than trial and error. And that's what uh, I'm really interested in trying to help firms understand that. And we'll ask you later on what you do to help managing partners. And there's three cohorts of managing partners that you've identified, which is interesting to look at. But let's talk about the managing partner priority list, Gary. This is very much your area of expertise. You've got six things on your list. So let's talk through them one by one. What are you going to start with? Well, um, so so where did this come from? Uh, um, I, I've done a presentation for years, and I really call it uh, you know, where the profession is heading. Um, in the in the U.S., uh, the AACPA, the guy who runs it, Barry Melanson, I've seen him do this presentation many times, and he talks about the state of the industry. And I, and having been an accountant my whole life or being a business guy, it's like I'm more important to me. It's more interesting where we're going, not where we are. So, so I kind of de- designed uh, this program, and now it's gone through some evolutions. And uh, I really talk about you know where the profession is heading. So, so if I have a list, okay, the first two items come from one fact, and uh, that is uh, this whole idea of, of a leverage model within the organization. Partners on the top, and you're working your way down to uh, junior staff at the bottom. It's your classic hierarchy, isn't it? Yeah, it's your triangular. Uh, but what's happened is we're finding is that uh, because of uh, 
maybe the lack of talent in at least in the United States, what we're seeing is that these firms are very challenged to fill that model with the right staffing. And uh, they're very challenged. And to me, it's probably the biggest challenge. Number one, it's your ability to service your existing clients. Number two, to have capacity to potentially grow at new clients, now, which are really important to the organization. So um, if I'm running a firm today, uh, I'm trying to say, well, how do I, uh, uh, how do I re-engineer that, uh, that historic model that's been around? And really, there's two ways to do it. You know, one is the whole element of outsourcing, you know, using professionals around the world. And this kind of gets back to the uh, early 2000s book by Thomas Friedman, The World is Flat. And, um, you know, and why can't you buy services uh, in other countries uh, uh, for what you're doing? So um, it, it became something that was uh, maybe an outlier 15 years ago. And now I think it's a significant source going forward and using talent around the world to outsourcing. Um, and it's more accepted and there's more uh, avenues to do that. The second element is process. And we, when I had my CPA firm, we spent a lot of time on process. And I don't think firms do a very good job of that. Uh, you know, what we do is we're really good at adding things to process, but we're really bad at taking things away from process. So, uh, so I think uh, uh, a look at process that's not going to be at all tainted. It's going to be, a, a, you know, no brownies, no limits can be really beneficial to firms. Now, and that, and, and what goes into that too is risk profile, your risk analysis, and now you can look at things like a child's tax return. In the United States, there's there's really no risk, and uh, and you know why even review the return? I mean, you know, probably not worth the time, but it's part of the built-in process. Is it really worth doing it? So things like that are really important. Um, you know, number three, this has been thrown upon us uh, in a in a very uh, aggressive way, and that's the culture changes because because of the pandemic and this shift to virtual office. And there's all kinds of things that are coming out of this thing. And, you know, the idea of teams working together and, and, uh, um, and you know, the fact that once we became virtual, we're never gonna go back. And then this has implications in terms of office space and where you hire your people. Where in the past, you know, it was, uh, everybody who worked for you was, with a, was within a short radius of where your office is. Well, that doesn't have to be the case anymore. So you could be hiring people all over the place, but how do they integrate into your firm? How do you service clients? So this whole idea of understanding your culture and trying to optimize your culture um, as they're going through these huge shifts. Uh, the next element is the shift to advisory. And, and I find this really interesting. And uh, um, I think the entire uh, accounting profession in the United States had it wrong, but I think they're finally starting to get it right. And I'm happy to say I've been beating on them for years. And, and what happened was, uh, uh, there was a total misnomer and the misnomer was uh, what is advisory? And I really believe the United States, uh, uh, what, what people and firms were thinking was advisory was really uh, uh, consulting. Um, so when you go work with your clients, you do their audit, you do their tax for work, and now you're supposed to provide them this third element, which is this consulting, telling them how to run their business better. And to that extent, there was a couple of companies in the United States that created uh, uh, consulting uh, learning development that they would bring to your office and they would try and you know, retrain your people and go into uh, more consulting. And I think that's all wrong. Uh, having run a firm for all these years, I had a lot of smart people working for me and they wanted to be accountants. They, wanted, they didn't want to be consultants and they were certainly smart enough to be consultants, but you know they chose to be accountants. And I just saw an incredibly difficult road and a return of investment that was dismal in trying to take a really good accountant and turn them into a consultant. So I don't think it really worked. And I think what the shift to advisory really is, is looking at additional services you can be adding 
uh, to your portfolio that's going to benefit your relationship and benefit your client. And every firm's different. It's not the same list for each firm. But, but you can imagine things like in the United States, it could be payroll or, or it could be cybersecurity or it could be wealth management. And a lot of it depends upon your firm. Um, but um, being able to add these additional resources to your firm. So in my firm, we were really successful at doing that. We were, and I think uh, uh, it wasn't like we were smarter than anybody else, but I just was really good at copying. And if you really think about the big four accounting firms today, are they really accounting firms today? And the answer is no, they're not even close to an accounting firm today. They're, they're a broad financial advisory service firms that happens to do accounting and tax as well. So I think that's what the new model looks like. So I think firms need to look as to what they can be adding to this model. But when they do that, um, you know, how do they do it? And there's really three ways to do it. It's either they buy a firm that's doing it, that's going to be a good fit. The second way is they grow it and start doing it themselves, which is uh, uh, takes longer, but, you know, you control the, uh, I guess, the output. And the third way is to partner with somebody who's doing it. So the shift to advisory, I think, is really, uh, uh, really important to firms. And when I had my firm, I will tell you at the end, I realized that, uh, that my advisory practices, A, made more money as an organization. They were better businesses than the accounting firm. And B, I sold all of them. I sold them at the higher multiple than the accounting. So, you know, people ask me, what would you have done differently? And the accounting firm was the engine that drove everything. But I would have spent more time focusing on my advisory practices because they were more valuable uh, as an asset to my other to my partners. Uh, number five on the list is growth. And I think there's been some big pivots in growth uh, up until 10 years ago. Uh, every firm grew the same way and they grew because of relationships and it was going to the country club or it was going to the, uh, uh, to the social events and it was meeting people and some people were good and liked it and you, know, you would create your network and that's how we grew organizations. But it's very different today uh, with this whole idea of uh, M&A as a component of a tremendous amount of M&A opportunity in the United States in terms of consolidation. But I will tell you in the United States, what happens in my mind, it's more serendipitous. Hey, I want to open our office in Sarasota. Oh, I found a firm that was interested. Let's figure out how to do it. As opposed to finding the right firm with the right characteristics, with the right fit and being disciplined in doing that. But the whole idea of M&A uh, and adding to your firm that way is out there um, and uh, uh, it's a possibility. And then the, th the second element, which is new, is this whole idea of growing through digital and growing through your digital presence, uh, through content, through social media. Uh, doing being involved in organizations online that uh, you know places that you would want to hang out, and uh, we've seen some firms in the United States have gone incredibly well, 100% digital, and they don't focus on M&A and they don't do relationships. So um, I really think it's really understanding those three elements and uh, how best to use them for your organization or where your best comfort is. And then the last thing on your list is your exit strategy. You're a new managing partner, and what should be on your list is what's my exit strategy down the road. And I just don't think firms look at that early enough and long enough. And I think it really has you know, terrible repercussions. Um, and, you know, the repercussions are you have to sell to somebody else. You don't have the right team with you. Um, you know, are you building the right organization to succeed itself internally? Um, and, you, and you don't wait till somebody's two year out to an exit strategy. New managing partner, you know, what's his exit strategy 10 or 12 or 20 years from now? That happens on day. So that's, that's my list. And as you can see, you know, saying, you know, hard to be a managing partner, that's a pretty tough list. And I'd say that's a full-time job plus one. I can think of another 10 things that might also make the case to be on the list, Gary. What else might we throw in the mix there to add to your six before we deep dive into a few of these six? Oh, there. Succession, talent, 
that kind of comes in capacity. You know, the talent really goes to that model and your inability to get talent. And the exit really goes to the succession planning. So I think, you know, we do cover those. But there's other things on the list, too. I think a managing partner, I mean, probably if you really think about it, what's the most important job? The most important job is execution, but prioritization of the execution. What are you going to execute? You could add 50 things to this, but, you know, number 50, should that be number one? I don't know. You know, that's where you have to decide. Let's dip a little bit into culture. Gary, we're in a remote world. You mentioned hybrid. Talking about human capital, it is hard to drive culture in remote settings. Just unpack human capital as a model for us and let us know what kind of things managing partners are thinking about here. Oh, um, so so one thing, you know, on, on the good side of it is they're thinking is I can get talent anywhere right now. Yeah. Before the talent was in this 30 or 40 mile radius or kilometer radius in my office, that was that was the way it was. And now uh, there's no reason why, you know, an accounting firm in Atlanta can't fire, hire somebody in Los Angeles because we're used to working that way. Uh, so that's one thing. But on the other hand of it, too, there's no reason why your employees can't leave and be hired by somebody in Los Angeles if you're in Atlanta. So what are you doing to protect your employees? So, so, so some of the things, you know, that I think are really important, probably the number one thing that I think is important is this millennial or, or the next generation work culture. Um, I've said this many times before that the biggest uh, challenge in public accounting today is that accounting firms are owned by baby boomers. And those are people in the United States caught between, you know, like maybe 58 and 75 or something like that. And they're populated by millennials. And best explained by a book a good friend of mine wrote named Rebecca Ryan. She wrote a book about millennials. The title of the book was Live First, Work Second. And I show that book to a bunch of managing partners who are all baby boomers, and they all start laughing and snickering. And I say, well, what would the title of the book be if you wrote the book? And we all know what the answer would be. It would be Work First, Live Second. So, so you have these cultural collides there. So you want to succeed your practice? These millennials don't want to work first, live second. They want a practice that's going to allow them to live first and work second. So you're developing the right kind of model to them. That's imperative to your ability to succeed going forward from a cultural standpoint. Now, the other element that's really hard is just this whole idea. We always work in teams in this profession. And, uh, and we always able to see the teams, touch the teams, go in a you know, consult meeting with the team. And now the team is different because the team could be somebody in a different state or somebody who has childcare or somebody you know, who's working from home because that's allowed right now. So, so, so are you creating the right kind of elements to your culture to maintain a culture that's going to uh, that's going to move forward, whether it's a client service culture or it's an employee centric culture? You know, are you really doing the right things to do that? And I'll tell you, I mean, I'm not the expert on that, but there's a lot of people who spend a lot of time thinking about that. And if I was running an accounting firm today, I would be talking to some of those people and just trying to define what are the things I should be doing within the organization to keep talent, to want talent to be here. Uh, you know, to try and, uh, uh, you know, be a destination for talent in the future. One of the hot topics, Gary, is employer brand right now. Speaking to what you're saying, how do we set ourselves up as the firm of choice to work for? How do we externalize the good things happening in our culture to such an extent that we become very attractive to an external labor market? Have you got anything to say about that? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, a, really, um, that's a really tough topic and. And I really think it's a tough topic because individual firms have tough times, you know, creating that individual brand and the brands have a radius. Now, now that's changing. Okay. Because of this whole thing we just talked about, but the brands always had a radius and the radius was the city I live in or the city you live in, or maybe we have some other offices and maybe we grow this regionally. 
But it was really hard because we were competing against international firms that were able to create brands. Now, they were really good at creating brands. I'm not so sure they were good at delivering on the promise of the brand uh, because of their uh, just their size. And when I was at BDO, I saw this. Uh, these organizations are so large, tens and hundreds of thousands of employees, that they become bureaucratic. And you know, how do you manage 100,000 people in, in a family-friendly situation? Well, you could certainly sit there and write you know, good copy on it and, and, and put that as part of your brand, but I'm not really sure they could deliver on it. And uh, um, so, so it, it, it's definitely a challenge, but I will say, you know, from my perspective, I think what firms will really get it and are really smart can do this by using their digital pos uh, positioning and really focus on their, uh, their digital presence because these young people, they're all over that. That's so important to them. So the digital communities they're part of, you know, what they look like on their LinkedIn profiles, look at their, uh, uh, their uh, um, at their web pages and 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 do we have those right components in there? You know, so so in essence, a web page is really challenging because on the one hand, we always look at a web page as what? Well, this has changed. The web page just replaced our brochure. We always had a firm brochure and we were happy to give it out. And once we finished it, you know, we were really ecstatic about it. But it had a time horizon of two or three years, and you have to redo it. You know, the ties got narrow, where the ties got wider, the lapels got wider, you know, <laughs> women's. Uh, Skirts were long or short, you know, so you had to be more contemporary. So all that moved, okay, but it would originally move to the internet or your digital, it really moved as a marketing tool aimed at clients. Now I think firms really have to look at this as a marketing tool aimed also at their talent as well, the firms that are smart. That's an excellent point because the modern day accounting firm website, apart from looking and sounding and promising the same as all the other accounting firm websites, it has... Two conflict, two conflicting priorities in that it's trying to attract new clients. Here are our service lines. Here are our areas of expertise. Here are the niches that we work with. And it's also trying to attract new staff. Here's why this is a great place to work. Here's our culture. Here's what we're doing with diversity, equity, inclusion, and ESG. Here's our vacancies. And the clients don't want to read about your culture and your future staff don't want to read about your your niches so much. So there's a lot for an accounting website to be doing these days. Yeah, you know, this kind of reminds me, you know, in the profession, and this is probably internationally through the profession, there's a, there's always two sides. And the one cycle is firms are looking for clients, and the other cycle is firms are looking for uh, talent. So right now, I'm going to say pretty boldly that firms really don't care too much about clients. They got as many as they want and hard, not hard to get them, but they're really struggling with talent. So I remember when I had my firm, we started thinking about that. And I'm thinking, I have this marketing department that's really good. And I think we were really world-class. I remember going to head of our marketing and say, hey, can we pivot this? Can we start focusing on trying to do talent attraction instead of client attraction? And they really got excited about it because it was like, you know, yeah, that would be really fun. Let's do that. So we did that. So uh, recently, three weeks ago, we had a, a conference that we did. It was a digital conference. We had 25 really major firms there had that same discussion. And I asked the question of the uh, marketing directors at these firms, how many of you are like on the pivot right now toward talent? And two people raised their hand. And I was just thinking, you know, your talent is such a, an important element right now. You have these wonderful marketing departments. You know, boy, it seems really smart to me is to try and use those marketing departments to start focusing on the talent side. Now, and maybe that's pivots to your webpage. So instead of your uh, you know, your landing page being a client-centric landing page, now your landing page becomes more of an employee-centric landing page. So things like that. I spoke to a managing partner of a top 15 firm in, in the UK recently, and he was saying, 
he's been very candid with me and said the talent crisis is so acute right now that we've we're on the verge of winning a very big contract with a very big client. And if we win this, I don't know what we're going to do. Well, but that gets get back to the really the very first thing that we talked about. And uh, if you look at United States statistics about people who are going into accounting, this isn't going to get better. So, um, you know, if we could kind of figure out how to maybe create some sex appeal into accounting, get people to go into it, they get a change and it's going the wrong direction. But why is that, Gary? You talk to somebody like you, you've been in this game a long time. You would say, hey, there's never been a better time to embark on an accounting career. But for whatever reason, people are not coming into the game, are they? I'll give you a bunch of reasons. Uh, the first reason, you know, the first reason is money, okay? And, uh, um, you know, young people, they, you know, for whatever reason and the way our societies go and, you know, successful people have money, you know, whether the Elon Musk, you know, or how they dominate, you know, what's going on there, they all want money. And uh, and where are you going to make money if you're a young person? Well, that's pretty easy. You're going to go work for an investment banking company. Or you're going to work for a private equity. So, um, you know, I would say that a lot of the same uh, characteristics or skills that you would use to become an accountant are not too much different than you would with respect to uh, private equities, of which there's 3,000 in the United States, or it's going to be, uh, you know, investment bankers or along those lines. And this started happening about 20 years ago, really with the rise of uh, technology. A lot of people who would have been good accountants now were focusing on potentially going into technology. So I say that there's a lot of competition and I would say we don't do a very good job of competing. And now who would do a good job of competing for us? You're not gonna have one firm that's gonna make this happen. It's gonna be the American Institute of CPAs, you know, spending money trying to uh, you know, get a TV show, you know, um, you know, uh, it's going to be, uh, you know, something that's going to be uh, Netflix about accounts. There's a couple ones here and there, but they're always, always terrible. But, uh, you know, so, um, so, so what are we doing to promote that going forward? And because of less people in it, I think the financial opportunities have always increased as well. And then also I'll flip that in terms of starting salaries. You know, you go and you're really successful and you get a starting salary, even working for the best firms, in the, or the, you know, supposedly the best firms in the world, the big four. You know, what are they going to pay you? Seventy-five thousand dollars, something like that. You go work for one of the major law firms, and you might start at one hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars. You know, for another two years of education. So I think we have a lot of things wrong in terms of our ability to track it. But the problem is, is that in order to fix it, first of all, you got to want to fix it, and second of all, the execution of the strategy is not going to change things for this managing partner next month. It's just not. So that's why I think if I had my list, I'm going back to this outsourcing process. How could I do the same things? taking, you know, whatever risk is appropriate and spend less time on it. And can I use other smart people around the world, you know, to uh, to help me uh, create more capacity for what I'm doing? I think it's just so important to affirm moving forward those two elements. Gary, this is terrific. We're going to get you back on another episode and talk about private equity and mergers, acquisitions, the different accounting firm models. But just to finish, talk to us about the different things that Wine and River do with training managing partners, particularly the, the three different cohorts that you work with and how you help them? Well, um, I started this program. We're going on our sixth year called Managing Partner Bootcamp. Uh, I've trained 100 people. Um, we must be doing a good job because we get more people and now we're getting more and more and more. This year we'll have uh, three classes and we'll have uh, uh, 36 people go through it. It's very unique. Uh, the only competitive program I would say is a program at Harvard that costs four times what Mars cost, and there's 250 people in the last week. We only have 12 people. Uh, it's, taught, it's taught by practitioners as well as skill set uh, experts. 
And uh, this coming year of the 36 spots, as of today, we have uh, 10, 26 of them sold. So we'll have 10 spots left for this year. We haven't started any of the programs this year. So the program is really good, I think. And uh, um, there's 16 classes. We teach those classes over two, three-day periods of time with a little bit in between. You have some books we'd like you to read that are foundational books for your uh, for your for what you're doing. But um I, I, if I had to say the real element of it that really is the is the differentiators, there's only 12 people in a class. So it's very small, very boutique in terms of what we're doing. And it's not your academic style class you get with Harvard, is it? No. I mean, I teach a course on how to develop strategy and how to execute strategy. And um, this course, this managing partner priority list, I'm sure we'll go through that at some point. And we teach things like how to have a difficult conversation, how to build teams. So uh, those are the kind of elements that go into it. So uh, the good news, I guess, for your uh, for some of your audience is that uh, we're going to be doing it in Amsterdam this year. This is two and a half years in the making, all scheduled and set to go, and then the pandemic ruined everything. So we're going to go at it again, um, and it's going to be in September. It'll be again in Amsterdam. We try and have it a place people can get easy in and easy out. Um, and I'm going to be partnering with a friend of mine, a guy named Sandy Manson. Sandy is the He'll be the forming managing partner of Johnston Carmichael at the end of May. Sandy and I wrote a book together. We're good buddies. Uh, he likes what we're doing, and uh, we think we uh, there's a need for it. So we're going to, through Sandy, uh, launch Winding River Consulting and focus on that element of, of leadership development. Uh, we also, uh, we're, we're trying to launch a few other conferences. I used to own a conference that was very successful called the Winning is Everything. I own, owned it with a couple of colleagues. It was the largest practice management conference on the planet. We had it for 20 years and that was sunsetted. We have another one we're gonna be doing called Winning Ways. It's gonna be much more boutiques, much more small, much smaller. And that'll be in Atlanta, November 1st and 2nd this year, limited to hundred people. So we're testing a few things. And uh, when we did Winning is Everything, that was a big blown out conference with sponsors and all that. And I don't think people wanna do that as much anymore. So we've kind of uh, trimmed this down to something that we think is more uh, uh, more palatable and uh, maybe more effective and better use of time. Uh, we do digital marketing through my partner, uh, David Toth. He's amazing. Example is uh, we have a 31-year-old client. Uh, he's had his business for five years. Um, he focuses on one vertical. He'll do $6 billion in business. Uh, he has 35 people working for him and they're all remote. I mean, this is just, and for us to see this uh, and work with him has been really interesting. And then our ability to learn from that and potentially inject that in other firms is keeping David really busy. So we're focusing time on there. And then the third element is uh, is just uh, advisory. Uh, you know, I work with accounting firms on projects. Um, I, I just got off a huge project that was with, uh, it's called the largest consulting firm in the world. They needed some help in the accounting industry. So they ended up working with me. Um, um, and then I sit on advisory boards for accounting firms, uh, things like that. And your audiences for managing partners, Gary, you go after the, the would-be managing partners, those in the number two position, if you like, and then you go after the, the ones that have just got into role and then the more established ones. Is that correct? Yeah, well, that's through the more of the advisory where I'll sit on somebody's advisory board, meet with them on a regular basis. You know, one of the things that's become very popular in the United States, I don't like it, is where uh, uh, to do a firm retreat, uh, some of the... Firms will hire the uh, the consultant of choice, come in for one once a year, spend time with either a subset of partners or all their partners and talk about what's happening and then leave. I just don't like that. Uh, I like following things through. So when I'm able to sit on an advisory board with the firm and work with them on the progress moving forward um, and, and really create that culture of using outside advisory to help them influence what they're doing. 
whether I'm going to do it forever or not, probably not, but then, you know, they establish it and they can replace me with somebody down the road. But I, I, I really kind of really enjoy that. So that's what we do at Winding River. Uh, you know, you'll see June 1, we'll be opening up Winding River Europe, which will be, uh, Sandy lives in Aberdeen, Scotland. So uh, he'll be there and uh, he'll have access to what we're doing through our leadership development training, and, you know, and digital through David. And uh, so that's, uh, that's kind of fun. And that's a work in progress for us. It's keeping you busy. Gary Seamus, thank you so much for your time and your passion today. You're welcome. This is the Accounting Influencers Podcast with Rob Brown and Martin Bissett.